Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 63 of the Ask Abhijit show. As you know, today I'm going to be taking questions, uh, taking questions that you have asked in the comments. Tomorrow I'll be doing a live chat show. So today we will take questions from the comments. Now, before I do that, let me greet you all. Who all is there? I can see Karan Ojaswa, Kite House, Aman Arora, Mani Sharma, Anuj. Harsh, Ishwar Rohan, Sampriti Goswami, Samarth Acharya, Sarcastic Superhero, Kingster Gaming, Aman Arora, Chiching, Ocean, Rudra, Jeet, Pradeep Pandey, UC Big Girl, Rajkumar Ravi, Shantanu, Chintan, Sunita, Shivaji Rajay, Ojaswa, Megastar, Speed Twin, Boni, Blitzpark, Murali, Karan, Makarand, Chiching, Nilesh, and many more people. Good evening, good day, all of you. So great to be with you all. Right. So let us begin with the questions, shall we? Let me go into the questions and let's begin with question number one. This is two questions in one. One by Akshay and one by Henry. Who is the greatest Indian king in terms of territory? And the other question is, in your opinion, what was the greatest dynasty in all of India's history? And how can modern India learn from it to become more powerful? Yeah, good questions. So the greatest Indian king in terms of territory, I would imagine it would be one of a few few kings. Uh, I think Chandragupta Maurya, the Mauryan dynasty had a huge uh, amount of territory under one. It was consolidated under them. So I would say it would be Chandragupta Maurya. Or Ashok, one of these two. Then you also had Kanishka the Great, who also had an immense amount of territory that he had conquered, much of northern India, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and also a large, uh, a large portion of Central Asia. His territory included, uh, it went all the way to the Aral Sea and the Caspian Sea. So let, let's take a look at what it what that looks like. Let me share my screen, and we will go to Google Maps. Okay, let me take this away, the question. All right, this is the map of India. So, when you talk about the uh, territory of the Mauryan Empire, it included almost the entire Indian subcontinent, which includes Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
much much of afghanistan and certainly all of pakistan so that was the mauryan territory when it comes to kanishka his territory extended all the way to the caspian sea which if you see it's here and the aral sea which is here so that is an enormous amount of territory it also included significant portions of the xinjiang present day xinjiang region of china uh, so it was an enormous territory that kanishka had conquered with uh, military conquest so that is kanishka's territory now when it comes to somebody like lalitaditya muktapida he also conquered significant uh, portions of central asia so he also had a very large territory uh and then we cannot forget the cholas who conquered essentially the entirety of southeast asia so southeast asia is all the way up to the philippines it includes indonesia malaysia singapore which is tiny thailand cambodia vietnam laos myanmar of course sri lanka and all the way to the philippines so that's how large the chola empire was so these were some of the greatest indian empires or or in terms of territory because the correct way i mean if you ask who is the greatest in terms of territory the measure is territory how much territory territory did they conquer so these are some of the indian kings or empires that had the greatest amount of territory under their dominion right so and and the other question is in your opinion which is the great which was the greatest dynasty in all of india's history and what can modern india learn from it to become more powerful uh, i the dynasties i just mentioned the the mauryans uh, the kushans under kanishka uh, then uh, lalitaditya muktapida and the cholas etc so these are some of the greatest dynasties in terms of territory in all of indian history so if you use territory as a measure of greatness then these are the dynasties that were the greatest which is the modern definition today who conquered the most who had the most amount of territory under his or her control that is the definition the modern definition so from that you would say that these four uh, four or so dynasties are the greatest what can india learn from it well what can india learn from it to be more powerful you have to invest in your military in your hard power they did not conquer the world through love <laughs> <laughs> they did not conquer these vast territories through love and peace and uh, brotherly feelings and all that it was hard power hard military power that that was able to that was the uh, driving force behind these conquests right and because they conquered so much territory they were able to spread indian culture and civilization that, that far so it was actually a force of for good because indian culture indian territory i mean indian culture and civilization is not uh colonial in its mindset it is not extractive indian kings even when they conquered foreign countries never extracted wealth out of them they never imposed their culture by force on anybody they never massacred anyone so this was a force for good so hard power translated itself into a force for good in this case unlike what happened during the european colonization which ruined the world so the simple thing that india can learn from this is that we need to invest in hard power forget about this obsession this fetish for soft power invest in hard power which is military power and economic power that's all that matters in the long run so good question to start off with okay question number 2 this is by h2 
what's your take on the recent ongoing excavations surrounding Keeladi, Tamil Nadu? Will it lead to the discovery of a contemporary civilization, this civilization, Purunai River civilization, to the Indus Valley civilization? And may it prove the Dravidians concept and potentially rewriting our Indian history and origin as you know it? Look, these excavations in Sivagalai, Kiladi, etc., various other places in southern India, they are certainly going to rewrite Indian history. They're going to shed a whole new kind of light on India's history. So that is certainly going to happen. It's not going to throw up some new civilization. The problem with the media today is that every time they find a new archaeological site, they call it a new civilization. So Kiladi civilization, Waigai river civilization, uh, Purunai civilization, every single new archaeological site is construed as a new civilization, which is so stupid. There's only one civilization in the Indian subcontinent. It's more than 10,000 years old. It's the Indian civilization. North, South, East, West was all part of it. And there is no such thing as Aryans and Dravidians. We are the same people. We live in vastly different regions of the subcontinent. And that's why over the generations, over hundreds of generations, we have kind of, because we stayed in these regions, we kind of uh, picked up different appearances. Some are fairer, some are darker, and so on and so forth. The different linguistic differences. Because the world was not, not like it is today. Today, you can go to Chennai, you can go to uh, Guwahati, you can go to Ladakh in, in a matter of hours. You can just hop onto a plane and go anywhere you want. There is so much interconnectivity today. The, the speed of travel is so fast. The speed of communications is so fast. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, it was not that way. Even though it is a single civilization, single culture, you have, because of the enormous distances involved, you had so many local manifestations, very diverse, very plural manifestations of the same culture everywhere. And that's why it looks like South India is different from North India and East is different from West and all that nonsense, which is not the case. We are the same people with the same culture, the same genetics, the same genetic origin and so on. So there is no such thing as Aryans and Dravidians. And this has been proven so many times through genetic studies and, so, and all that. So it's not going to prove that there was a separate Dravidian race and a separate Aryan race and all that nonsense. It's going to disprove all that. We are already finding evidence of Brahmi script all the way down south in southern India, right? Now, now the 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 uh, the historians are trying to portray that as Tamil Brahmi. What on earth is Tamil Brahmi? It's just Brahmi. Brahmi is a script. It's not a language. You can't give it the name of a language. It's a script. The Devanagari script is, doesn't have Sanskrit Devanagari and Marathi Devanagari and Hindi Devanagari variants. It's just a script. It's just the Devanagari script. Similarly, Brahmi is just Brahmi. There's no Tamil Brahmi and some other Brahmi. So these are the artificial distortions that are being imposed upon uh, these things. And that's why people keep on believing that there are differences. There are no differences. So I would certainly expect that we will find lots of more data, lots of more archaeological sites throughout India, east, west, north, south, center, everywhere. In southern India, we'll find lots of stuff. We have just begun scratching the surface. So these, uh, we will find lots of new archaeological sites that will certainly be contemporaneous with the Indus Valley uh, civilization, so-called Indus Valley or Saraswati civilization. Certainly it will be contemporaneous with that. There is no doubt about it. It's going to rewrite Indian history in the sense that we will start to realize that just as India is an enormous networked civilization today, it was the same several thousand years ago. 
as well. The only difference was that the speed of travel wasn't there, the speed of communication wasn't there. And yet it was just one civilization. Right? So that's what we're going to find. It was all interconnected. It was the same civilization and we had the same culture everywhere. That is how Indian history is going to be rewritten. Because right now we feel that India is a, is is a, is divided into North Indians and South Indians, essentially, and also East, West, all, all that nonsense. So that is all going to disappear slowly as we find more data from new archaeological archaeological sites. So that is what's going to happen. Next question is by Avinash. Avinash says, where is the center of the observable universe? But good question. So let's take a look at, uh, at depictions of the observable universe. Let me see. Let me put it on the screen. So I have done a simple Google search for observable universe and let's take a look at the images. So this is a good representation of the observable universe, all right? This is the observable universe. The actual universe may be much, much, much larger than that. But uh, the observable universe has a diameter of approximately 93 billion light years, which it gives it a radius of half of that, which is 46.5 billion light years. And that's how far we can see. And much of it is going out, going beyond our observable horizon because of the expansion of the universe. But this is the observable universe and we are at the very center of that. Because we can only see that far in all directions. So the center of the observable universe, as far as I am concerned, you see, as far as I am concerned, the center of the observable universe is me. And as far as Avinash is concerned, the center of the observable universe is him, wherever he is right now. And all of you, my viewers, as far as you are concerned, the center of the observable universe is where you are at this very moment. You are the center of the observable universe from your perspective, from your reference frame. And for me, this here right now is the center of the observable universe. That is how it goes. Next question is by Akash. Do we know how supermassive black holes come into existence? Stellar black holes form in a supernova explosion, but how do supermassive black holes form? So most black holes, stellar mass black holes form in supernova explosions. Not always. There are certain cases in which a, if a star is massive enough, it never goes supernova. It just winks out of existence and goes black or goes, you know, it, it stops emitting light. It collapses straight into a black hole without ever going supernova. So that also is uh, is believed to happen. There are mechanisms by which that can happen. But when you talk about stellar mass black holes, it's always something that results from the death of a star. So, so that's the mechanism. Now, what about supermassive black holes? So almost every galaxy that we know happens to have an enormous supermassive black hole at its center. So that is where a significant amount of the mass of the galaxy is concentrated. A supermassive black hole typically has a mass of over a million solar masses. Right? So the question is, how did these supermassive black holes come into existence? And why do they exist at the center of almost every galaxy? So it is believed 
that in the extremely early universe, very early universe, just a fraction of a second after the Big Bang took place, the very early universe was very small. It was very small. All of the energy and mass of the universe was concentrated in a very small area, a very small volume rather, right? And the density of of energy, it was just energy at the time, it was incredibly high, incredibly high energy density. And in this very early universe, you had quantum fluctuations happening. Quantum fluctuations are, uh, is a quantum mechanical phenomenon. If you look at the vacuum of space today, you will find that it's not empty. You have particle antiparticle pairs uh, coming into existence and winking out of existence all the time. So this, uh, the emptiness of space is actually an illusion. It's all teeming with these particle antiparticle pairs these are called quantum this is what comes out of uh, quantum field theory and the same phenomenon was there in the very early universe you had these quantum fluctuations and because of the incredible density energy density of the universe some of these quantum i rather many of these quantum fluctuations would have possibly caused over densities of space in space, which means that the density in some regions of space in that time, in that very small universe, would have been so large that they would have formed microscopic black holes. Right? So it is expected, it is believed that in the very early universe, just fractions of seconds after the Big Bang happened, you would have had an, a massive amount of micro black holes that were produced at the time microscopic black holes or primordial black holes. And it is believed that these ancient primordial microscopic black holes would have formed the seeds of future galaxies. So that's what is one of the uh, mechanisms by which uh, these over densities of mass, black holes, primordial black holes, would have, as the universe expanded, formed the seeds around which future galaxies would have formed and these primordial microscopic black holes over time would have grown into what are now supermassive black holes so that is one of the um, that is one of the mainstream uh, theories about the origin of supermassive black holes so the universe is about 13.7 13.8 billion years old so most likely in that time these ancient primordial black holes accrued mass Right, they accreted a lot of mass and slowly they grew over time and became larger and larger. And uh, lots of other visible mass uh, gathered around them and eventually became galaxies. And these black holes at the center, they grew more and more massive. And today they are what we call supermassive black holes. We also have ultra-massive black holes that we can't explain how they formed, but these mysteries do exist and do persist. But as far as supermassive black holes are concerned, this mechanism that I just described seems to be a good mechanism for how they came into existence and how they grew over the billions of years to the size that we to the sizes that we observe today. So I hope that answers the question. Raghav says, can Trump again become the president in 2024? I find it extremely unlikely. Uh, let me see how old Mr. Trump is. Let's take a look at Mr. Trump's age. Okay, I don't know what happened there. Let's see what his age is. 
He is 75 years old and this is the end of 2021 as of today. So, in another three years, he will be 78 years old. Do you think it is it makes sense for somebody to run for president at the age of 77, 78? I don't think it makes a lot of sense. People typically want somebody who is somewhat younger, at least in his or her 60s, right? Uh, if not younger. I mean, Obama was in his 40s when he became president. He is one of the youngest presidents in the United States. Typically, politicians who succeed at that level are in their 50s or 60s, typically. Uh, Mr. Biden is much older. How old is Mr. Biden? Let me see. Mr. Biden is, uh, is 79 years old at the time. And you can see that his he, he is no longer as active and as, well, as, as vigorous as he would have been, let's say, 10 years ago. So it always helps if a person is a little younger because the presidency of the United States is a very stressful job. So Mr. Trump is going to be is going to be 77 or 78 when the next election season comes in. So that itself is going to make it hard for him to campaign that age. Maybe he's strong enough, vigorous enough, but people want someone younger typically, right? And if there are younger candidates, then that may work against him. It may work in the younger candidates' favor. And secondly, the, the larger problem is that uh, the American political establishment sees Mr. Trump and his presidency as a huge mistake. He was an outsider. He is not a career politician. He was, he's an extremely, enormously, enormously successful businessman. That's what he was. And like I have said in the past, Money doesn't buy you power, but power can buy you money. But in the case of Mr. Trump, he was able to become the president because he was popular. And uh, so I think the American establishment sees that as a mistake. They want somebody who is part of the establishment. They don't want any outsiders to ever knock down the door and barge in the way it happened with Mr. Trump. So I think they will ensure that somebody like Mr. Trump is not able to succeed in the future because it harms their long-term political interests and agendas on either side or side of the political divide, whether you're Democrats or Republicans. Like when Mr. Trump was impeached during the uh, near the end of his presidency, many Republicans voted in favor of this impeachment, even though they are part, they were members of his party. So it shows that there is a, there was a great deal of of dissatisfaction with Mr. Trump and his success, even within his own party. So I think it is extremely unlikely that he will succeed again. Uh, he may run for presidency in 24, but his own party may scupper his chances. So that's what I imagine will happen. But let's see how it goes. I, I think it's quite unlikely that he will succeed. Okay, Rajesh says, what is the Millennium Challenge Corporation and is it beneficial for a country like Nepal? I think the MCC is some US, is it an NGO or something? It is some kind of, uh, it's not exactly an NGO, but it is in some way associated with the US government. It is a funding agency of, sort, of sorts that provides funding to certain projects in some countries, provided they meet certain requirements, certain political requirements. The, the country has to be democratic and it has to have respect for human rights and it has to share values with the US and that sort of nonsense. And if you conform to their uh, requirements, then they will give you some funds. 
uh, for uh, undertaking certain projects in your country, development projects. I think it is funding some electric electricity project or something in Nepal from Kathmandu. It, it goes through Kathmandu to somewhere else and so on. So it is something that is, it's like a carrot and stick kind of thing. You do certain things, you make certain changes in your country and we will give you this carrot, you know, a few million dollars or something like that to undertake a certain project or so. So that is one way of, uh, that is one of the ways in which the US uh, increases its influence in countries by giving these financial sops and so on. So the money is provided to the government and then it can be used in whatever way the government sees best and the output, the end result should be that the project should be more or less complete, you know, uh, that, that sort of thing. So you could you could construe that as a kind of a bribe in a sense. So it, uh, I think the US is using these means to uh, retain some influence in Nepal because as we know, the Chinese influence is growing significantly in Nepal. What happened was that Nepal was once a Hindu monarchy until the 1990s. Then uh, I think it was Mr. Rajiv Gandhi's government which which started this, uh, this process of, uh, of undermining the Hindu monarchy of Nepal. Uh, the Maoist terrorists, insurgents, whatever you want to call them, were encouraged. They were given uh, given assistance clandestinely from India. I think it's all very well documented. It's not me who is saying this. It is a raw. It is a former raw chief who had said that. Let's take a look at that. Let's let's take a look at that. Uh, let's see what was said. See, it's it's it is in DNA India. Uh, the Indian RNAW throughout the monarchy in Nepal during Mr. Rajiv Gandhi's time. Rajiv Gandhi throughout Hindu monarchy in Nepal and so on. So I think it is all well known by now that it was Mr. Gandhi, the Congress party, which ensured that the Hindu monarchy of Nepal was destroyed and the Maoists, the communists, the Marxists, they came into power. That's what happened. And as a result of that, the Nepal is now under a great deal of turmoil. The culture is under a significant amount of attack. Uh, missionaries are having a free reign in the country. And the Chinese Communist Party has gained a great amount of influence in Nepalese politics today. So I don't know what was the objective that Mr. Rajiv Gandhi was trying to achieve, but it ended up harming the, the national interests of Nepal and the national interests of India. So. I think the Americans are trying to offset that by 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 offering these incentives and all that to the Nepalese to retain some kind of influence in Nepal. So is it beneficial for a country like Nepal? I well it, it all depends on how the Nepalese approach this. Uh, I think there was some concern about uh, the contract the, between the MCC and the country of Nepal being such that it will supersede or override Nepalese laws and constitution. That was one of the concerns that has been clarified to some extent, but questions still persist. So I think it's never really beneficial for a country like Nepal. In the long run, the Americans are not doing this to help the Nepalese. They're doing it to further their geopolitical interests. But the question is, what is better, the Chinese influence or American influence? I think American influence on balance would be better for Nepal than Chinese influence. We know what China seeks. It, it seeks to simply use and throw other countries the way it has been doing everywhere. And Nepal is, if, if the people of Nepal think that China, China is their big brother, they're going to help Nepal. Come on, man. Why, who are you kidding? 
so i think overall on balance american influence is better than chinese influence at least for now for the short term in nepal in the long run nepal has to rise again as a, as a culture as a country hopefully one day the entire indian subcontinent will be integrated again under indian civilization not some foreign civilization or foreign culture in the future long term project but as of now now nepal should ensure that it is not used as a pawn on the geopolitical chessboard by by countries who don't really care for its long term interests so that's what i can say about that amandeep singh asks do humans naturally follow polygamy or monogamy see if you look at human history there's always been roughly a one to one ratio of males and females right when a child is born there's always a 50 50 chance it's a boy or a girl and that is how it has statistically always been so when you have a one to one ratio of males and females it is it is but natural that monogamy would would be preferred to polygamy because i mean how can it be a standard practice for a man to have multiple wives <laughs> when you have only one female per male in the human population so i think historically throughout the history of the human species one would expect that humans have followed monogamy rather than polygamy of course in certain cases when when you had kings and emperors those people could i suppose uh buck the trend buck the norm and and because they were so wealthy and prosperous and they could afford to do it they could have multiple wives and all that but that is i would say the exception rather than the norm so naturally you would you would expect that humans follow monogamy not polygamy of course when you look at a country when you look at the western world today they have lost their their cultural moorings and today you find that people get divorced all the time people have multiple partners quite often right if you look at a person's uh, lifetime they would typically have multiple such partners that they either marry or or have relationships with over a period of time so that is a cultural thing so in in the western countries let's take the us for instance the divorce rates are very high people typically get divorced within 3 to 5 years i would expect uh, i may be wrong about that but typically it's uh, marriages don't last very long uh, most children grow up in a single parent household and all that uh, youngsters have multiple affairs and all that so it's become the norm but that is not polygamy or monogamy that's something else altogether it's just a breakdown of the societal system i would say cultural system and all that but at one time one person typically has only one relationship going even in the west today so i think it is natural for humans to have a single partner at a given time mostly i think humans have been monogamous throughout our most of our history so that's what i would see this as harshit says if the no- if the knowledge of the vedas was transferred orally by ancient priests through the recital of hymns then how were historians able to predict the age of the vedas and confirm its origin to 1500 bce where is the confirmation there is no confirmation how were they able to predict the age of the vedas it was uh, european uh, historians 
who tried to fit everything the entire timeline of human history into the biblical time frame according to the bible the world was according to the biblical world view the abrahamic world view uh the world was created about 4000 or so years ago and there was nothing before that so how can indian history be 5 6 7000 years old how dare it fit everything into this short time frame and that's why people like max miller etc they force fitted the dates of the vedas to around 1500 bce and also they had to uh propagate the aryan invasion theory the aryan invasion myth so all that is just completely arbitrary there is no confirmation of the date of the vedas to 1500 bce just because all the historians today try to create a consensus and try, and try to create this narrative that the vedas are that old doesn't mean it's true it's not been proven there is not a single shred of evidence that proves that the vedas were written only around 1500 bce if you look at the actual contents of the vedas you can see that they are far older than that far far older than that i mean i have spoken about this multiple times let me say it again in the rig veda the oldest text that we have in human literature the oldest known text in human literature is the rig veda in which there are copious references to the great mighty river saraswati it is described as a as a as a mighty mighty powerful river roaring and the mother of floods roaring loudly and so on and so forth it is described as a mighty river now geological analysis and data and studies they show that this river dried out around 1900 to 1500 bce which shows you which tells you that the rigveda could never have been written around 1500 bce it would have been written closer to when this great river was in its prime and it was last in its prime around 6000 bc right so i am not saying the rigveda was written around 6000 bc but it was written closer to 6000 bc than to 1500 bc that is for sure that is undeniable based on the evidence within the text itself it's not referring to some mythological river it's referring to an actual river and that actual river has been found today so that argument has gone out of the window and still they persist in making these baseless claims and the problem is that these claims are still treated as the gospel truth in india's media they are taught as truth in india's academic system and so on and that's why people all of us not me and not me anymore but most indians today still believe that there is a confirmation of the date of the vedas to around 1500 bce which is not true at all so uh so historians have not been able to predict the age of the vedas and con- confirm their origin to 1500 bce these are all outright blatant lies this is a question by akash is white skin really superior and makes a person more beautiful you once said that in our country dark skin was rejoiced and probably didn't even matter much before the british came considering indian civilization was so vast and spanned out from gandhar to the uh, to dravida etc and uh, hosting a myriad a variety of complexions and facial features and no discrimination was observed towards anyone did this perception start across the world by the europeans because they colonized much of the world at one point and uh, the fair skin industry is on the rise since a lot of people especially females are mentally colonized into looking fair and lovely pun intended is it also one of the causes of the rift rift between north south fanned by the politicians of the south 
and linked with the Aryan invasion myth. All of this is certainly interconnected. So the first question is, is white skin superior? No, it's not superior. White skin is actually a disadvantage if you want to travel the world and, and, and live in various parts of the world. If you have white skin, pale skin, then you are extremely susceptible to radiation damage. Right? Because the sun, the, the, the sun is a star that gives off all kinds of radiation. Much of it is trapped by the magnetic field of the earth and yet you have a lot of ultraviolet, uh, ultraviolet rays, etc. that come in, they, they, they reach the surface of the earth and they cause, they are potentially dangerous to humans. And that's why we have uh, we have adapted to evolve uh, various skin colors depending on where we have historically lived. So the people who lived closest to the equator traditionally, that's typically the people of Africa, equatorial Africa, they have the darkest skin because they receive the most amount of radiation from the sun. And people who live closer to the poles, they, they have uh, evolved lighter skin colors, less melanin. But if you look at the globe, the majority of the globe is regions where you receive more sunlight and more radiation. And therefore, people who have lighter skin, skin, paler skin, if they move to such part of the world, the incidence of skin cancer and other problems rises dramatically. Australia has one of the highest rates of skin cancer in the world because the European colonizers who live there aren't suited to that sort of <laughs> Uh, environment, right? So that's what you find. So actually, I would say that pale skin is actually a disadvantage. It is not uh, evolutionary great if you want to travel the world. And in India, we have all kinds of skin complexions, ranging from proper pale, uh, pale skin like Europeans to almost African-like dark skin, because we it's it's an enormous subcontinent, and people lived in various environments for long, long periods of time maybe dozens or maybe even hundreds of generations. So in India, historically, there was no such perception that dark skin or light skin has any significance on your personal uh, value of, 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 uh, of how good or how valuable a human being you are. If you look at ancient uh, depictions of Indians in cave paintings like Ajanta, Elora, etc., you will find people with fair skin, lighter skin, people with significantly dark skin, and they are all portrayed as the same. In, I think in Ajanta or Elora, you have many depictions of ladies and people with significantly dark skin and they are portrayed as being very beautiful. So in India, before the uh, past 1000 years, there, there never was this perception that skin color has any significance on, 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 on your personal worth as a human being. I mean, Indians regarded <laughs> the Greeks as in kind of inferior, mlechas, right? Even the Scythians, who may have had lighter skin possibly than the average Indian. So Indians regarded these people as inferior because they had they were not culturally as evolved as Indians. So it was all about culture. Culture was what made you superior or inferior, not the color of your skin. So historically, India had never had this. In the past 1000 years, India was first invaded by the Turks, who typically have lighter skin than Indians. And then by the Europeans, the British, who also typically have lighter skin than Indians. And it is during these past 1000 years that I think this, this mentality has crept into the Indian psyche. That because these people who conquered us and subjugated us for a thousand years, they had lighter skin, then maybe it means that lighter skin is superior. Maybe 
it's that way so that false sense of of this uh, skin color thing has crept into indian into the indian mind into the indian psyche over the past 1000 years or so before that it was never that way so white skin is in no way superior <laughs> I, i mean come on skin color has no bearing on your worth and your value as an individual and now uh, so that's what i would say about that this uh, fair and lovely nonsense the skin color the skin fair skin industry it it uh, it's very unfortunate that people try to lighten their skin color using these various cosmetic uh, products and all that and yes it is one of the causes of the rift between the north and south which is fanned by politicians so the aryan invasion myth says that the aryans were white people the original indians are black or or brown dark brown skin people dravidians apparently and therefore people who live in india today and who have lighter skin tones are descendants of aryans they are the invaders of india they are the descendants of the ones who subjugated the dravidians and therefore they are outsiders they are evil they are not the real indians and that is something that the aryan invasion theory says and that is what has been used by politicians in southern india to gain votes and stay in power for decades they every year i think they garland the statue of that fellow that bishop caldwell in in, in tamil nadu i think because he is the originator of the aryan dravidian myth and which has benefited this politician so greatly so they garland his statue and honor him every year for that for for giving us this lie so these are the 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 myths that that keep india divided what india is is much deeper than superficial skin colors be india indians are the same people whatever the skin color is right so that that's what genetics tells us so we have to rise above all these lies and that will happen only when we realize what the real what the truth is and i know what comments i'm going to get every time i say these things i get lots of comments from certain people not everybody most people understand this but some people will always come and comment please i implore you look at the actual data and statistics stop being blind sheep stop believing things blindly trust your intelligence learn how to look for information the information is available publicly the genetic data and all that learn how to search for it and look it up yourself this is by chiching the question is why is there so much mediocrity in both my school and college my classmates are not interested in science i haven't found even a single student in my class interested in physics or cosmology or astronomy or astrophysics they are neither ambitious is this the situation in all uh, this is the situation in almost all the sections of my school why is it so <laughs> a good, very good question mediocrity so what is the definition of the word mediocre the word mediocre doesn't mean the 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 meaning of this word is average mediocre means average so if you look at the average human being they are going to be average they will not have any extraordinary uh interests and th- there is nothing wrong with that the average person is going to have average interests and they will want to have an average life everybody wants to have an extraordinary life but most people are unable unwilling or incapable of putting in the hard work or dedication and all that to become extraordinary individuals and most people are just happy with the status quo nothing wrong with that 
there absolutely nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with a 9 to 5 job there's nothing long wrong with have raising a family and being being normal nothing wrong with that but that's just how it is now uh, my classmates are not interested in well i when i was a kid my classmates were never interested in science i was always the odd sheep <laughs> i've always been different and that's how it is so if you have interests that are out of the ordinary then you will feel certainly always that everybody is different and they have no interest in what i have what i personally am interested in now one of the reasons for this is that the the overall atmosphere in india is such that science is not promoted there are no science communicators in india there are no science fiction writers in india the indian history the i mean india is the birthplace of science mathematics and science but this is not taught to us and therefore we do not regard that as part of our heritage and so on and so forth and even if somebody has an interest in astronomy or astrophysics there's no they don't know where to get knowledge about this from where to study this there are no role models i mean if you look at the past 50 years of uh history in india tell me one great scientist who has come up with a world changing invention or a world changing discovery in physics or any in in chemistry in biology there are some indians who did that a, a handful but they all did it in the west nothing has come out of india and therefore the 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 environment that you need to promote science doesn't exist in india the role models are all bollywood actors and actresses right and uh, none, none of them ever speaks about science i mean maybe one or two may but maybe they're not alive or so on so forth so the overall atmosphere in india the cultural atmosphere the cultural milieu etc is such that science is not important astronomy physics cosmology chemistry biology these things are not considered to be important what is important is that you get a mba or some degree like that and you get a private job <laughs> that sort of thing so these are the reasons why there is a significant marked lack of interest in science so this is what you will find in every school in india north south east west everywhere you will always have people with the talent for it with the aptitude for it but they will not know where to get inspiration from so what i would suggest to you chiching is that don't be discouraged if you have interests that are different from those of other of your colleagues of your peers it's not a bad thing it means you're different it means you're special so find ways of pursuing those interests and maybe you will contribute something great to the country and to the world so i would encourage you to not be discouraged and to follow your interests and do whatever you think is is uh, the right direction for you all right okay dungar singh chauhan says did shrinivas ramanujan gain his knowledge from a goddess or a deity as he was a true devotee of the goddess namgiri i've heard many times from uh, sadguru that these are concentrated energy forms and can be used in many different ways if, if approached correctly well i do not have a personal insight into the mind and the psyche of shrinivas ramanujan the great mathematician one of the greatest mathematicians who ever lived right uh, he did say that he he gained his inspiration and his insights his mathematical insights because 
uh, from from the goddess that he he was devoted to i think it was goddess namgiri or whatever the name was i'm not i'm not personally quite sure of what the name was but i'm assuming it is namgiri so he was a very devout hindu shrinivas ramanujan very spiritual person and he attributed everything that he uh, discovered to to divinity to to, to the goddess that he uh, yeah so that is what he said now where did his insights really come from i don't know maybe there was a goddess who was sending him these insights i don't know about that you know so so what i would like to say is that there are many scientists mathematicians etc the the typical view about scientists is that they are atheists scientists don't believe in god and so on and so forth that is not the case there are many famous scientists who have made these statements but it i would say that those people are would most likely be in a minority i would say i would imagine that most scientists especially the intelligent ones understand that our understanding of science is very limited i'm not trying to say that science is wrong no science is not wrong but our understanding of science is very very superficial and limited because of the limitations of our intelligence the human intellect has an upper level of intelligence beyond which we can't understand science and therefore our understanding of the universe is very very fragmentary very rudimentary and very limited and therefore there may be things out there that we can't understand and every intelligent reasonably intelligent scientist knows this and that's why such people would be would not consider themselves to be atheists i know scientists personally who say that human emotions are a bunch of chemical reactions and all that nonsense i totally disagree with that i don't know what human emotions are i i i so so that's my view about this now i don't know what mr sadguru has said uh, concentrated energy forms see, see he's not a scientist i would consider i i would categorize him either as somebody who uh deals in spirituality or philosophy or maybe uh something in between these two things so his definition would be different from the definition uh, that a scientist would have about energy and all that concentrated energy is visible it is measurable so a god or a goddess is not something that you can actually see or measure right so maybe it is a certain way of putting things across that is easily understandable to the to the lay people that is not how i would put it across but uh, he is somebody who has an enormous following a very accomplished person so he has his views and uh, maybe maybe i'm much younger than him and maybe much less intelligent than him then so 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 i would uh, refrain from passing any remarks or comments or judgment about what he says but uh, certainly he is a significant force for positivity in the world which is always a good thing so that's what i can say about this asmita asks what is the reason behind saudi arabia trying to be progressive will it pose any threat from isis and why did they award shri narendra modi in the past okay so saudi arabia is changing now uh, their crown prince mohammed bin salman has essentially he is now the de facto ruler of the country and he is taking the country in a different direction uh, away from the traditional uh, path that it has always been on uh, for the past many many decades 
he's modernizing the country uh i think now women are allowed to drive cars and and do certain things that they were not allowed to do in the past and yeah so you could say that the country is now trying to be more progressive and what's the reason for that the reason i would imagine is because now the world is changing in the past the entire world had only one source of energy of fuel for transportation and everything else which was oil and the saudis were the major oil exporters in the world and therefore they had a de facto monopoly on oil exports they were the biggest exporter so everybody needed them and therefore they could afford to do whatever they wanted within their country and nobody would would uh, you know interfere but today things are changing the united states is now the world's greatest uh, the world's largest producer of of oil because of shale oil fracking all that natural gas also is a byproduct of that and now we are the world is now uh, aware of the problem of climate change there is a significant sentiment against using fossil fuels fuels like oil coal etc and there is this deliberate concerted effort to move towards alternative forms of energy so now we have this lithium ion batteries that are powering cars and two wheelers and all that and it's only going to accelerate so the world is going to over the next few de- decades trying going to try and move away from burning fossil fuels that is certainly on the cards and therefore saudi arabia is going to lose its its uh, central position globally as the global supplier of energy for everybody and therefore its geopolitical influence and importance is going to go down and therefore they will no longer be able to do whatever they want without worrying about consequences and that's why this is a pragmatic move that they are making they are slowly trying to become more progressive give more rights to women so that in the long run when their uh, geopolitical situation is less prominent than it is today they will not have to face long term consequences for that because the western world we know is very very um, it is very intrusive right it penalizes countries for having the wrong lifestyle when those countries are not no longer useful and so on so that is the reason why they are doing this i think it's a pragmatic move will it pose any threat for isis i don't know what there is uh why did they award shri narendra modi in the past so so the thing is that india has under mr modi india has uh, uh india has built up very good relations with these arabic countries with the persian gulf with the arabic uh, with the arabic countries uh whether it's the uae various uh, emirates in the uae whether it is oman whether it is bahrain whether it is the saudi whether, whether it is saudi arabia it, india has mr modi has managed he has succeeded in developing very strong very cordial very warm and friendly relations with the leaders of these countries and it's not only about friendship because in geopolitics like i've said there is no friendship or enmity there are only shared interests and india is a big major consumer of oil and maybe there is an understanding that we will continue to be a major consumer of saudi oil 
and that's why india is an important partner for these countries especially saudi arabia and that's why if somebody is your important and valuable partner you will bestow upon them every honor that you can bestow and that's why they are they gave awards etc to mr modi not just the saudis other countries as well in the in the persian gulf region so that's how it is now if you can if you contrast that with iran india is no longer buying iranian persian oil not much at any rate the americans have ensured that india doesn't uh buy persian oil because they want to squeeze the iranian regime and uh, impose sanctions on them and that's why you can see now that the relationship between india and persia is no longer warm it's no longer fr- very friendly the way it used to be maybe a decade ago so that's how it works when your interests align you will be very friendly towards each other you will give each other awards and treat each other very warmly when the interests no longer align they no longer converge when the interests diverge the relationship will well no longer be that warm very co- that cordial that friendly that's how it works in geopolitics and this is a very good example of that okay these are two questions one by shree's world one by ngawang lungtok if you have not read a particular book till date how can you comment on that strange and you said you didn't read his book but went on to comment on the book purely based on not reading the book that stocked but other commentaries and summaries of the book excellent so these are sarcastic <laughs> comments uh the book they are referring to i think it is mr nehru the, the what's the book called the discovery of india so in one of my previous uh, sessions in one of the answers of one of the questions i had said that i have not read mr book uh, mr nehru's book the discovery of india but it is a book that is not worth reading it is garbage or something like that i had said like that and i have got many comments about that that and i have also commented about other books by various other people let me not go into the names but i have said that i know so and so person what his overall ideology was and therefore i am not interested in reading so and so chapter or so and so chapter of the book i have no interest in that it's a waste of my time the book is of no use or no value to me and it's a very good question that people are asking that if you have not read this book then how can you say the book is not good how can you comment on that see it's like this there are so many books in the world and there is a limited amount of time that every human being has in this life and therefore you have to be very judicious in what you read and how much in in how you invest your time now when i have a book that people are saying please read this you are wrong in your assessment about this person read the book and in so and so chapter so and so thing is written which will change your mind i will not do that when i know a person and i know their overall ideology then i don't need to go into their tedious writing because i know their overall ideology let's let's say okay let me go into one name i had said that i have no interest in the writings of mr dayanand saraswati people have been telling me please read his book satyartha prakash chapter this or chapter that listen i'm not going to do that it's a waste of my time and let me tell you why i know overall what mr dayanand saraswati's ideology was he was a social reformer he wanted to reform hinduism he was against idol worship he wanted hinduism to give up idol worship he wanted hinduism to give up superstitions and various things because hinduism is backward inferior 
it has to be changed once i know the big picture of this person i am not going to waste my time reading the output of a mediocre mind no interest i am sure he must have written something or the other which is reasonably good in one of his chapters i don't care overall the person was a reformer he is somebody who believed that hinduism needs to be reformed once i know that i have no interest in reading anything from that person when it comes to mr nehru people say that if you have not read discovery of india then how can you say it's bad i know mr nehru's intellectual caliber then why should i read his book it's that's how it goes you have to use whatever intelligence god the gods have given you to make these judgments don't read everything listen it's like this let me put it in a different way a slightly cruder way you don't have to jump into a pile of garbage to know that it stinks that's the answer okay next question it's by sayed mir thaki ali in the aryan invasion topic video you had said that saraswati was wider and greater than the indus does it mean longer than the sindhu too uh the indus the sindhu river is about 3200 kilometers long and the dry bed of the saraswati uh from the starting point till kutch its maximum length is between 2 and 2 and 1/2000 kilometers so that's the first part of the question uh no i don't mean to say that the sindhu or the the saraswati was necessarily longer than the sindhu river the indus river maybe most likely it was not longer than the sindhu river but it was wider broader and much more powerful as, as a river so it was a monsoon fed river if you look at the sindhu it is primarily fed by glacial melt meltwater high in the himalayas if you look at the ganga river it again originates from meltwater glacial meltwater in the himalayas if you look at the brahmaputra it does start off north of the himalayas from the tibetan plateau from glacial meltwater but more than 80 85% of its actual volume of water it acquires this volume of water in arunachal pradesh from monsoons and from rainfall and all that so this is a different kind of river it is a very wide massive river but the majority of its water again comes from rainfall and the rainforest in the arunachal pradesh region similarly the saraswati was a monsoon fed river it was not primarily a glacial meltwater fed river and that's why it dried out because of climate change the indian monsoon declined monotonically from 6000 bc onwards and eventually it caused the drying up of the river because there was no longer enough water in this river bed in this enormously wide river bed to sustain the course of the river all the way to the ocean and that's why it eventually slowly gradually dried out therefore i would say that it, it was most likely not as long or longer than the sindhu river it was probably shorter but it was wider broader and way more powerful as a river while it was still in its prime right so that is the answer to the first part of the question now the second question is why is it called saptasindhu the region the punjab uh, region undivided punjab region why is it called saptasindhu why isn't it sapt saraswati does it mean sapt saraswati was a tributary of the sindhu uh that's the second question so the word sindhu means river in the sanskrit language saraswati is the name is a specific name 
it has no other meaning it is the meaning of one specific river and one specific goddess the divinity associated with the river the goddess of knowledge so saraswati has only one meaning it is a proper noun it is not a common noun so if you say the ganga it is a proper noun but if you say nadi river it is a common noun right similarly saraswati is a proper noun it's not a common noun but sindhu is a common noun it means river so you can call any river a sindhu in sanskrit right so you had seven major rivers in this region that's why it was called the sapta sindhu region the region of seven sindhus or seven rivers so that's why it was called sapta sindhu not sapta saraswati very good question very good question and lastly the persians were a rigvedic tribe why didn't they mention the holiness of the saraswati yamuna ganga in their religious texts initially originally the parshva people who moved to persia they gave the name their name to this region parshva became parshu uh, persia right initially they were all adherents or followers of the old culture old civilization the old religion if you want to call it that hinduism then this prophet came out emerged zarathustra zoroaster and he somehow was very influential and the entire culture changed and they adopted his revealed religion zoroastrianism which was again a polytheistic religion it is uh, labeled as a monotheistic religion which is completely incorrect now i don't know what were the pre zoroastrian texts in persia we don't have any the zoroastrian texts are essentially a revision of the old religion and culture so many of the divinities in zoroastrianism are inverted so devas become kind of evil or kind of negative and danavas or or asuras become kind of positive and so on and i suppose many of the old divinities were discarded over time possibly there is a river called the haravati in persia which clearly is named after the old old great river saraswati uh, the pronunciation is different becomes because sa becomes ha in persian in old persian so saraswati became haravati but you can see that they named this river in persia after the great divine river of their ancestral lands yamuna ganga is further east so maybe they did not have that much attachment at that point in time with these rivers but you can certainly see the 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 desire to to honor the memory of the great old river saraswati that is certainly there so it's all about slowly drifting away from the ancestral culture and going in a different direction but you can certainly see uh traces strong traces of the origin and indian culture even today in zoroastrianism because there are so many uh, aspects of their culture their rituals their traditions that closely mirror ancient vedic culture for example in vedic culture we had yagnas the parsis the zoroastrians they have yasnas which have the same function and so on so forth there is so much in common even today between these two ancient traditions goku says is it some curse or is it just bad luck for indians for the past 1000 years i am not talking about about invasions but so many accidents chinggis khan did not invade india and save us from the turks prithviraj chauhan letting gauri go back maharana pratap dying of a hunting accident shivaji maharaj dying too early the british defeating the mighty marathas later we almost got independence in 1857 
how netaji was treated did not become the first pm of india we were too close to independence too many times but something unfortunate happened so many accidents why did it happen only with us is it a punishment of the gods for forgetting dharma or is it just bad luck it's not punishment from the gods see it's like this we make our own luck it's about momentum when you are successful you keep on being successful when you do something right you get a positive feedback from the world because you succeed in whatever you're trying to do and then that confidence that positivity carries forth in the next task that you take up the next project that you take up you succeed in that it it builds momentum it keeps on building momentum so if you are successful you cannot be successful unless you work very hard and you work smart as well so when you do that the gods reward you with luck it's not luck it's just the outcome of the hard work that you have put in because that maximizes the chances of something good happening to you and it minimizes the chances of something bad happening to you so it is because of your hard work your dedication and the momentum that this builds that you become successful and the same thing also works when you start failing if you if you fail at something if you make a big mistake and and you fail in whatever task or project you were trying to accomplish it brings in a feeling of negativity then you try something else you again fail it reinforces the feeling of negativity of defeatism and it becomes it it kind of uh, takes on a, a kind of momentum and it it it's a snowball effect so success is a snowball effect and failure is also a snowball effect there is momentum in success there is momentum in failure and what happened in the past 1000 years is that we kind of slowly slowly at first but uh, faster later built up this momentum of failure so let's talk about let's talk about prithviraj chauhan he is not the only person who let mohammed gauri go before prithviraj chauhan it was maharani naiki devi solanki from gujarat who defeated mohammed gauri in gujarat and let him escape all the way to afghanistan so when you make these mistakes when one king or queen makes the mistake it's okay just a few years later the, another guy prithviraj chauhan made the same mistake he defeated this guy in tarain and let him escape all the way to afghanistan he could have pursued him and killed him but he did not do that mera kaam ho gaya i defeated him i am great so when people start making mistakes one after the other it builds momentum in the wrong sense in the wrong direction negative momentum and that's what allows your opponents your enemies to regroup to understand your tactics because they have had the experience of your tactics and then to come back and beat you and defeat you and once they defeat you they're not going to put let their foot off your throat they're going to crush you into the ground and that's what happened so it was in the beginning we had powerful kings and queens who could have des- destroyed the threat once and for all they chose not to do that that led to their defeat and then that momentum continued in the wrong direction and we started experiencing defeat after defeat initially it took the turks 3 to 400 years to make any inroads in, into, into india they had captured afghanistan they had uh, changed the demographics and culture there they had captured some parts of western india which is now western pakistan but they were not able to make inroads into india 
because we were so powerful and we had more unity in those days. But when people started making mistakes, when people started forgetting the teachings of great Indians like Vishnugupta Tanakya, then this became a snowball effect. And that's how it is now perceived it is now perceived as bad luck. It is not bad luck. It is a series, a ch long chain of bad decisions, one after the other, that built momentum in favor of the invaders. Now, you could say that, that Shivaji Maharaj reversed that. He, he started the Maratha Empire. He died too young, but his successors were able to kick out the Turks from India and take over uh, and, and reclaim much of India. Right, the Maratha Empire at one point in time uh, encompassed most of the Indian subcontinent all the way up to southern Afghanistan, and then again they made the wrong decisions, wrong succession. They made mistakes, which allowed the Europeans, the British, to take over India in just a couple of wars, in just a few decades. So again, mistakes. You, if you make mistakes one after the other, it's always a series of mistakes that creates momentum. So that's what's happened. It's not punishment from the gods. It's just that the momentum built in the wrong direction. It was a series of mistakes. And then these, these ideas got into the minds of Indians. These, this defeatist mentality, the slave mentality, the idea that white skin is superior, the idea that we are not great warriors, the, the idea that we have inferior genetics, the questions I get all the time. These wrong attitudes and values and beliefs have crept into the Indian mind and that's where we are today. It's a consequence of all the wrong decisions that our leaders, our rulers took over the past 1000 years. I would not attribute it to bad luck or any punishment from the gods. We make our own luck. If you want the gods to smile at you, work hard and make the right choices. The gods will smile upon you again. So that's where we are today. It's the culmination of 1000 years of mistakes and bad choices. It's It all boils down to leadership. It all boils down to leadership. It can always be turned around. You just need one great leader. So that's where we are today. Okay, this is an interesting question. It is by Cute Boy. And the question is, who are the Romani people? What happened to the Romani people in medieval times in Europe? And is Eric Cantona Pashtuni? I don't know what is Pashtuni, but he is certainly Romani. Let's begin. Who are the Romani people? The Romani people are a vast diaspora of, of Indian origin. Uh, they are a people who speak an Indo, a so-called Indo-Aryan language, but they live all across Western Eurasia, traditionally. Now they live all across the world. So they typically were uh, living from uh, the region where they lived. Let's let's take a look at the map. Let me share my map with you. Where am I? Okay, let's go back outwards. So this is Eurasia, Europe and Asia together. So the Romani people were typically found from Anatolia, Turkey, some parts of Egypt, some parts of Iraq, etc. And all across Europe. So these people are of Indian origin. They speak in a language that is a descendant of the old Prakrits of India. 
a descendant of Sanskrit, and it is mixed up with various words, loan words from various European languages, even some Turkish language. So, uh, at least five percent of the population of Turkey is of Romani origin. Significant populations of Romani people live in Eastern Europe, in Romania, uh, Serbia, Bulgaria, etc., and all other parts of Europe, France, Spain, Northern Europe, the United Kingdom, and so on. So these are Indian origin people. What is their origin, and how do they, how did they end up in Europe? So that is a good question. How did these people end up in Europe? So what happened? So nobody knows for sure what happened. But uh, what most likely happened is this. During the Turkic invasions of India, the Turks took hundreds of thousands of Indians as slaves and transported them to the slave markets of Central Asia. Many, many of these Indians died in the Himalayas and the Hindu Kush mountains. Hindu Kush means the killer of Hindus. So many Indians died in the Hindu Kush mountains because it was too cold. Indians were not accustomed to that cold and they, were, they do not have sufficiently good clothing for that. But lakhs of Indians, mostly women and children, but also artisans, artists, etc. They were transported to the slave markets of Bukhara, Samarkand, Central Asia, Arabia, etc. And they were sold off there. And I expect at least a significant portion of the people of the Arabic and Islamic world have some Indian origin as a result, especially from the matrilineal, matrilineal lineages. Now, I think what happened was this, that they also took lots of architects, artists, artisans, craftsmen, musicians, etc. to entertain them and to build their great architecture and so on in these parts of the Islamic world. And maybe they, take, maybe they took too many Indians there. And then they realized we have too many slaves that we don't need now. We, we already have enough people who can do the work for us and there is a surplus. So what do we do with them? And they most likely did not want to massacre them on their own soil. It's okay to massacre people in India, but not on our own soil. So what they most likely did, these Turks, was to order these Indians to leave the country, but don't go east back to India, go west. You are never allowed to go back to India, but go wander westwards wherever fortune takes you. And that's what happened, that around a thousand years ago or so, reports began, uh, you have records of these Egyptians coming into Europe. The Europeans thought of these people as Egyptians. And that's where the, the word gypsy comes from. Egyptian, Egyptian, gypsy, that way. So they thought they were Egyptians. They spoke a strange language, which was an Indian origin language. And these people, they were never allowed, allowed to settle down anywhere in Europe. They were persecuted horribly. There were massacres, you could almost call it a genocide. They were enslaved in Europe. But these people, the Romani people, they somehow managed to keep their language alive and some aspects of their culture alive. So that is the origin of the Romani people. They are found all across Europe and the world today. So that is their sad story. It is a story of incredible hardship, terrible persecution, a lot of racism and so on in Europe. Even today, they are marginalized in Europe. Many of them are stateless people. They don't have any official citizenship. They are not allowed to settle down in cities. They are forced to live on the outskirts of cities in these caravans and wagons and all that. They don't have official documentation of, of any country. So they are still living on the fringes and margins of society. It is outright racism that you see in Europe every day. 
and you will find that happening right now as we speak so let me uh, show something let me see if it if, if you can find evidence of that so this happens even today so the nazis the third reich under adolf hitler they come they committed a horrible genocide of the romani people they killed millions of jews but they also killed at least i would say a million romani people and this persecution happens even today as you can see these people are living essentially in a dump yard they are still marginalized still persecuted roma persecution intensifies during the coronavirus pandemic in europe you can see that everywhere even today so that is a sad story of the romani people who have contributed so much to europe for instance spanish culture when you think of spanish culture you think of flamenco music and flamenco dance well flamenco music and flamenco dance is romani culture it is not spanish culture it is romani culture they are the inventors the creators of flamenco music and flamenco dance and there are so many famous romani people who you may not know are romani so let me give you some examples famous romanis you may have heard of michael kane the very famous actor well he is of romani origin have you heard of charlie chaplin charlie chaplin charlie chaplin everyone knows him he was of romani origin his granddaughter una chaplin she is romani she was in the game of thrones game of thrones very famous series you had yul brynner a very famous hollywood actor who also had russian and mongol heritage but he was he also had romani heritage then elvis presley the very famous one of the most famous rock singers of all time he was romani he had romani heritage pablo picasso maybe the greatest painter of all time he uh, was a romani person he had indian heritage the uh, actress rita hayworth very famous hollywood actress she was a romani then robert plant one of the greatest rock singers of all time led zeppelin he may not look very romani because he has blonde hair but he has romani heritage uh who else we had many flamenco singers joaquin cortes cortes yes so he's one of the most famous flamenco artists dancers in the world spanish guy i think and then you had uh, you have people like eric cantona one of the greatest footballers of all time manchester united he has romani heritage who else do we have latan ibrahimovic everyone knows him he is romani andrea pirlo one of the great greatest italian footballers of all time again romani and so on and so forth there are so many famous romani people and many of them we may not even know about because they are afraid to to divulge the, the fact that they are romani because there is so much persecution 
of the Romani people. There is such a negative feeling in Europe and in the West about Romani people. They are looked upon as criminals, as lazy people, as incompetent people and so on. All these terrible stereotypes about them. So they have contributed so much to Europe culturally, in, in the sports. Tyson Fury, the heavyweight boxing champion, of uh, who is the boxing champion right now as, as you speak, he is also a gypsy and so on and so forth. So that, in short, is about the Romani people. Next question. This is by Krishnan. Why didn't the Romans conquer Arabia? So let's understand why the Romans did not conquer Arabia. What is the point of conquering something? See, the Romans were, they were a colonizing people. They were an imperialistic people, the Roman Empire. So to understand why they actually conquered other parts of the world, we have to understand the real motivation for that. The motivation was always very simple. Extraction of gold and wealth and resources and food security. They wanted uh, multiple sources of foodstuffs, of food uh, materials, grains, cereals, fruits, produce, livestock. And the more territory you have, more fertile, rich territory you have, the, the better your food security is. So these are the reasons why the Romans conquered various parts of the world. Let me, let's take a look at a uh, different way of looking at this. So let's take a look at Roman Empire roads. The roads of the Roman Empire. So this will give you a good idea of the... So these are Roman roads. If you look at this image here, one second, let me make the image larger. These are Roman roads across the territories they conquered. You can see all across Europe uh, into Anatolia and northern, uh, northern Africa, Iberia, which is Spain, and England as well. So these are Roman roads. They built this enormous network of highways and roads. And the purpose of that was very simple, to extract wealth and resources from Roman colonies. Why did the British build roads in India? Why did the British build railways in India? This was the infrastructure of occupation and extraction. Similarly, the Romans did the same thing in all the territories they conquered. They built these roads as an infrastructure of occupation and extraction. And all of the wealth and resources was extracted out of these colonies, out of these conquered territories, and into Rome, into Italy. Right? So if you look at all these territories where the roads are, these are rich, fertile lands. Rich in terms of mineral resources, other resources, gold, silver, slaves, well-populated areas. And also, for, these are also fertile regions. So you could grow lot, lots of uh, foodstuffs there, harvest things there and all that. Yeah, you know. So that is why the Romans conquered so much territory. It was also to subjugate any possible, uh, any possible threat to Rome. So there was the other other reason, but mainly, the, it was the infrastructure of occupation. Now, if you look at the Arabic uh, Peninsula, Arabian Peninsula, let me share that. So let's take a look at the Arabian Peninsula, which is to the east of what the Romans conquered. 
so tell me something what do you see here you see an enormous desert here the population density is always low even today there in roman times it was even less than what it is today so all these territories the romans conquered were rich prosperous and fertile territories but the arabian peninsula is just desert what is the point of conquering a desert what can you extract out of a desert nothing grows there very few people to take as slaves so it doesn't make any sense from a purely logistical perspective from a colonizer's perspective to conquer a desert at that time there was no use for oil there was no awareness of the fact that there is so much oil there and the technology for using oil for energy did not exist and therefore it did not, did not make any sense for the romans to conquer arabia so it's just a cost versus benefit analysis there would be a great amount of cost to send armies into this desert you would have to sustain them over hundreds of kilometers thousands of kilometers without water without food it would be a huge logistical effort and what do you get out of it nothing so there is no benefit and there's a great deal of cost and that's why they did not conquer arabia that's how the psychology and methodology of conquest works okay sid asks why is preserving culture important when we can simply embrace science or we can just follow a particular culture because it is or do we just follow a particular culture because it is simply too attached to our ego so this is a good question that sid is asking why do we bother about culture this is the 21st century why can't we simply embrace science and use science for progress and for uplifting humanity good question valid question legitimate question now let me show you a certain perspective but let's look at it a different way right so once again let me share my screen with you let's go to google let us look at let's take a look at this doctors come under science right in the 1950s and 1960s american doctors used to promote cigarettes cigarette brands hundreds of ads featuring a variety of doctors these guys were firmly grounded and rooted in science the medical profession is a scientific profession right and yet look at this scientific evidence of the effects of smoking <laughs> more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette not one single case of throat irritation due to smoking so and so brand what about the lungs they won't talk about this so they were using science to cherry pick data and to mislead the public and doctors who would have known about the effects of smoking were very much complicit in this activity so many doctors so this is what happens when you worship money and we do, when you don't have any culture any cultural moorings that tell that tell you that this is not a good thing to do in the us it's always been capitalism the blind naked pursuit of money 
money is what's worshipped. It's not oil that they worship, it's money that they worship. And that's what happens when there is no culture and you just blindly follow science because science can always be used to mislead people. Look at what happened in 2020. We knew about the transmissibility of the coronavirus through air. There was data available. What did the WHO do? It suppressed the data. The lab leak theory was poo-pooed as pseudoscience. Follow the science. Follow the science, they used to say. Today, it is one of the most uh, likely scenarios how the virus escaped and spread worldwide. The lab leak theory. There is so much data that points to it. But because they, it was inconvenient for that, them, they were trying to suppress that theory. Now it is a mainstream theory. So what happened overnight? What happened to follow the science? Science is an exact is an exact thing, but the way it is interpreted depends on your culture, your your the kind of agenda you have. And if you have no moral values, if you have no cultural values, then you will use science to influence people in the wrong way, to to mislead people and to exploit people. So when you abandon culture, then you open up the doors for the exploitation of humanity, very often using science as the pretext. And therefore, it is extremely important that we do not abandon culture. And well, which culture? That's up to you. It's your personal choice. But I would say that we have seen the effects of uh, Western culture, Abrahamic culture in the destruction of the planet in the past three, four hundred years. It is just destroy the planet with abandon. Don't worry about the consequences. The earth is a resource to be exploited for your benefit, for your pleasure, for your enjoyment. That is Western culture. We know that very well now. So I think it is time for humanity to look eastwards and try out Indian culture because Indian culture has never uh, regarded the environment as a resource to be exploited. So that is why, in short, preserving culture is very important. Culture gives you a moral framework. It gives you certain principles that you cannot uh, go against. It gives you certain moral values that you cannot uh, transgress upon. And that's what keeps uh, humanity going in the right direction. Otherwise, just follow fake science. Science is not fake, but the interpretations can be uh, can be falsified. Like we just saw, American doctors promoting cigarettes and saying they were good. That's just one example of thousands. So that's why preserving culture is important. Okay, Akash says, if no information can travel faster than the speed of light, how does quantum entanglement work? Why is the former theory not scrapped? So quantum entanglement is a is a feature of quantum mechanics, but it can be explained through non-quantum mechanical examples. Let's look at it like this. The thing about entanglement is that there is no transmission of information of any kind in quantum entanglement. Let me explain how. Let's say you have a pair of gloves, a left glove and a right glove and you package them separately, you send one of these packages to a friend of yours in Tokyo and you mail the other package to a friend of yours in Moscow. 
Now, when your friend in Moscow receives the package, he or she will not know whether it's a left glove or a right glove. But when he or she will open the package, they will see what glove it is. Maybe it's a right glove. Then they will know instantaneously that your friend in Tokyo received a left glove. And if your friend in Tokyo sees the left glove in the package, they will know immediately that your friend in Moscow received a right-handed glove. Now, let's say instead of sending these packages to a friend in Moscow and a friend in Tokyo, you send one package to a friend, a hypothetical friend who lives on Proxima Centauri and another friend who lives in the Andromeda galaxy. Hypothetically, it's a thought experiment. Now, when your friend in the Andromeda galaxy, who is one and a half million light years away from here, opens the package and sees that it's a left-handed glove, he or she or it will know immediately that your other friend on Proxima Centauri, one and a half million light years away, has received a right-handed glove. They will know instantaneously that this correlation is there because they know the correlation exists. But they will not be able to transmit information faster than the speed of light. So when they receive one half of the thing, they will know immediately what the other half is like in the, in the other location. So that is quantum entanglement. These two gloves are part of an entangled system. And no matter how far apart they are, once you see one part of it, you will instantaneously know what the other part is like. So let's say you have a particle with spin zero, which decays into two particles, one with spin one half, and the other with spin minus one half, opposite spins. And these particles travel off in different directions. Let's say they travel for 10, 10 years, almost at the speed of light. And then they, one of the particles is measured. And you see it's spin minus one half. You will know immediately that the other particle, which is like seven light years away, is of the opposite spin. So that is quantum entanglement. You will know instantaneously what the state of the other half of the system is. But you will not be able to transmit information faster than light. So there is no actual transfer of information or data. So, so it is. It does not violate that that part of physics, right? So that is the thing about quantum entanglement. It uh, quantum mechanics, of course, is non-local. There are things that uh, I will not be able to explain in great depth because it's so complicated and it's so confusing. But this hypothetical example should give you an idea of what quantum uh, entanglement actually is. It is about a system of particles that is intrinsically entangled and there is a correlation between these two particles no matter where they are located in the universe. So that's what quantum entanglement is. Okay, Priya asks, uh, Mr. Nehru supporters claim that if Shri Nehruji had accepted the UN permanent seat for India, then we would have had to fund the UN. And at that time, India was not in a position to support even itself. What's your take on this? See, show me one piece of evidence, documentary evidence, that shows that, that, that there was a condition made upon this offer. And the offer was conditional on India funding the UN. There was no condition, there was no string attached to the, to the multiple offers that Mr. Nehru received. 
There was one offer in 1950, one in 53 or so, and one in 1955. These offers came from the United States and from the USSR, and on one occasion from both the US and the USSR together. Please accept a permanent seat on the UN Security Council for India. And there were no strings attached. If this claim is made, show me the evidence for the claim. There is no evidence because there was no such string attached. There was no condition imposed upon India that if you accept this offer, then you will have to spend so and so money every year to fund the UN. There was no such condition. This is a lie. This is a complete outright fabrication. There is not one piece of documentary evidence or even anecdotal evidence that corroborates this claim. Look at China. Mr. Nehru ensured that China was eventually given the seat that was reserved for India. Did China fund the UN? China has spent almost no money, relatively, relatively speaking, in funding the UN. Every country gives some money to the UN every year. So does India. So does China. But if you look at the funding of the UN, the US is the major funder. The US is the major source of funding for the UN. China's uh, uh, share of the contribution is quite small compared to the US even today. When China is uh, like the world's second largest economy, even today, their contribution to the UN in terms of funding is, is very small compared to the US. And therefore, this bears it out that there was no condition on anybody that if you are given a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, then you will have to uh, give so-and-so amount of funding per year. There was no such deal at all. Right? So why did Mr. Nehruji not accept the offer? Well, only Mr. Nehruji, Nehruji can tell. To our greatest regret, he no longer is with us. But uh, that's all I can say about this. Okay, Rohan asks, is time cyclic or linear? Dharmic philosophy says time is cyclic, whereas Abrahamic religions support the linear time theory. Well, here is the problem. When we talk about, about time in physics, in science, we are talking about measurable time, time that can be observed. When you talk about Dharmic or Abrahamic philosophies, you are talking about philosophy which is not the same as science. Science is completely separate from philosophy. The philosophical worldview is completely separate from science. In philosophy, you talk about non-observable phenomena, non-observable effects. You don't need proof of anything. In science, you need... Science deals with observable objects and observable phenomena. Whatever you talk about in science has to be observable and measurable. So when we talk about measuring time, we only talk about time that goes in one direction, linear time. The equations of physics are bilinear. Uh, they, they work in both directions. You can even uh, extrapolate back in time. And that's how we came up with the Big Bang Theory. But there is no evidence from observation, from measurement, that supports a view that time is cyclic. Show me a single piece of observational evidence that supports the uh, the hypothesis or theory that time goes around in cycles, right? So according to science, according to physics, time flows in a straight line. And what data do we have? We have the data of the past few hundred years, maybe a few thousand years. That's all. It's a very, very, very small period of time. 
for which we have data. The universe is 13.8 billion years old and the data that we have is from the past 5-10,000 years at most, right? Human uh, history. So that is a very, 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 very small <laughs> period of time compared to the actual age of the universe. So from that, I can say that we don't quite know at what speed time flows, whether it is, uh, but the best data that we have shows that it is linear. Now, when you talk about philosophy, let's say that we talk about Dharmic philosophy. In Dharmic philosophy, we have four yugas, right? Satyuga, Dwapar Yuga, Treta Yuga and Kali Yuga. And then the cycle repeats. It doesn't mean that time starts from zero again. It means that the same patterns happen over and over again. But time goes forward. Right? So even in the Dharmic philosophy, which talks about yugas, it says that the same patterns happen over and over again. It doesn't say that time again goes backwards and starts from zero again. It doesn't ever say that. If you look at Hindu cosmology, it says that the age of the universe, the, the age of Brahma is some trillion or so years old. I'm not sure what the exact number is. But that also talks about linear time. You have lots of yugas in that. You may have thousands or millions of yugas in one uh, lifespan of Brahma, which is one lifespan of the universe. So again, from that perspective, even from the Dharmic perspective, you have linear time. Yugas are cyclic, but those are patterns that are, that are recurring. It doesn't mean time uh, resets to zero and starts every time again from zero. Now, there are certain scientists who, in their old age, tend to mix up science and philosophy. And uh, such some such people I hear here have been speaking about various formats of time, linear time and cyclic time, and I don't know what are the kinds of time. I don't know anything about that. Maybe I am, maybe my intelligence is much lower than these people. So maybe I should not comment about them because maybe they are far more intelligent than me. So all I can say is that from my limited perspective, from my limited intelligence, time only flows in a straight line. It's a linear time. Even from the Dharmic cosmology, time is linear. Let, let's take a look at Dharmic cosmology. Let's take a look at that since we have Google here. Let us take a look at what it looks like. Okay, let us look at Hindu cosmology. Cosmology. Let's go in there. Wikipedia just for the sake of uh, for convenience Hindu cosmology where is it there has to be some kind of um, let me take a look at uh, how time is reckoned time Hindu units of time let's take a look at this let us make this larger so you have this is the hindu uh, reckoning of time so one cycle of brahma is 10 raised to 22 seconds right 10 raised to 22 seconds it's like trillions or quadrillions of years that's how long the age of one universe is in Hindu cosmology, in Dharmic cosmology, in according to Dharmic philosophy. So this is an example of linear time. It is not cyclic time. 
it does say that after one cycle of brahma is over a new cycle of brahma will start which is a new universe so it talks about a cyclical universe for sure but in the universe that we live in time is linear according to this very diagram here which illustrates the hindu view of time and within that you have all the various yugas and all that which is a different story which is not really cyclic time it is just patterns that happen over and over again but time still flows in a straight line so i hope that illustrate that that uh, that clarifies my view on this there are people who have spoken about cyclic time they have even tried to give a mathematical foundation to that quasi cyclic time or whatever i have tried to understand that it i was not able to understand that most likely i am not intelligent enough to understand that so that's all i can say about that okay raghav says how can a prime minister loot our country <laughs> how can a prime minister loot our country how can a prime minister do corruption and why has modi ji done no corruption so i know that many people are in some way detractors of prime minister modi but i think even the biggest detractors and biggest enemies of mr modi have not been able to accuse him of corruption so that is one thing i think we we can all agree upon mr modi has not done any corruption he is the one prime minister that i can think of personally who has not done any corruption at all which makes him unique the question is how can a prime minister loot our country so a prime minister would indulge in, in such activities if they have received the position of prime minister without going through any struggle if a prime minister receives this position as a gift without having to earn it then they will not value it right if you receive see what happens when people win lotteries they usually go bankrupt in a few years they waste all the money because they have not understood the value of money you understand the value of money if you have to struggle for it if you have to work really really hard to earn every paisa of it then you will value the money even if you have crores of rupees you will not waste it and you will remain rich so you value something when you have to when you have to struggle hard to earn it mr modi to become prime minister he had to struggle a lot you may agree or disagree with his politics but what is undeniable he has is that he has put in a lifetime of work to to reach a to reach a position where he deserves to be the prime minister of india did other prime ministers of india in the past put in any of that kind of hard work some prime ministers were actually given the position of prime minister as a gift maybe as an inheritance of their family or so on and when people don't have to work for something they don't value that thing and that's when such misuses of of position and power take place so i am not taking any names of course but that is how a prime minister would feel that it is okay for them to loot the country okay this is by rajarshi sir chess uh the 
Okay, it says, please don't underestimate India's contribution to the IT sector. We should not forget that many educated Indians go to foreign countries and work over there. So India is a source of talent. I think it's logical to stop saying India has zero influence. My YouTube channel is also observed by viewers all over the world. We Indians are good YouTubers too. So you should think a bit positively. So what I had said in one of my previous answers is that India doesn't have any influence in the world geopolitically. India doesn't have an influence in its near abroad, in the Indian subcontinent, and India doesn't have an influence globally. That's what I had said. And uh, this gentleman, from his perspective, feels that I am wrong. He says it is logical to stop saying India has zero influence because India is a source of talent for the entire world. We send people, brilliant workers in IT, in software, all that technology to foreign countries, very educated people, and they go to other countries and they work over there. So therefore, India has influence. Okay. So it's like this. These Indians, they, they get educated in India. They acquire the knowledge and skills in India. <clears throat> then they go and settle down in other countries. They work there. And what do they do there? Do they do nation building for India there? No. What they do is they work as cheap labor and they build the infrastructure of those countries. They build the Facebooks, the Googles, the Yahoos, the Twitters. They build all the algorithms. And who benefits from these algorithms, from these platforms? It is the West. It is the United States. It is whatever other country they work in. And whose influence increases as a result? It is the geopolitical influence of these countries that increases as a result. Are Indians respected in the West? Well, they are not disrespected per se. But what influence do they have over there? Does the United States regard Hinduism as something good or positive? Not at all. Hinduism is denigrated as something backward in the US. There is so much Hindu phobia in every US university and there is not a single re repercussion for saying bad things about Hinduism and for being Hindu phobic. But if you say something similar to for another uh, religion, you are cancelled and you have to apologize. So where is the influence for India? What are you talking about? Just because we send our cheap labor to work in other countries and build their infrastructure doesn't mean we have any influence. In the 1970s, 80s, etc., cheap Indian labor went to the Gulf and they built these giant cities like Dubai and Abu Dhabi and all that. Does it mean that India has influence there? They see Indians as workers, as coolies. You call that influence? So today we have cyber coolies. That's all Indians are looked upon as in the West. India's influence will grow when we start creating our own platforms, our own cyber infrastructure, our own virtual universe. That's when India will be respected and that's when India will have influence. So, so therefore, I have to disagree with what this gentleman is saying and disagree very strongly. That's not what influence is. Okay, we are almost at the two-hour mark. Let me take one more question. This is by Raghav. Sir, am I the body or the mind? The good old mind-body problem. 
So it's essentially about consciousness. We know that we are conscious. And our consciousness seems to be in this region. Because our sensory organs are in this region. But are we the body or are we something separate from the body? The mind? Or is the mind also something that's part of the body? That is the philosophical question you're asking because it is not a scientific question. Science is, a, is unable to deal with these questions. Science as of today is not equipped to deal with these questions. But I would say that we are not the body. The body is simply an animal that you ride. Think about a horse rider. The horse rider goes everywhere on the horse. But he is not the horse or she is not the horse. Similarly, the body that we have is essential to our existence. But it is simply an animal that we ride. Right? The consciousness, the chitta is something else. Does it emerge out of the complexity of the neurons in our brain? Maybe, maybe not. There is no evidence that it does. There is no evidence that it does not. But what I can say for sure is that the body, even though we regard the body as a as an extension of ourselves, our entire self-image is intrinsically tied to our body and yet the body is not who we really are. The body is simply a vehicle. It's simply an animal under our care. We have to take care of this animal. If we take care of it well, it will last us for a very long time. If we don't take care of it and if we abuse it, then we will not exist for very long on this on, in this world. But what the real consciousness is, what the self is, is certainly not the body. It is something deeper. Maybe it is something that emerges out of the complexity of the brain or maybe it is something else entirely. There are certain philosophical schools of thought that say that consciousness permeates the entire universe. It concentrates in some locations like in, like in the human body, in the human brain, but maybe it's not something that emerges out of the brain. Maybe it's something that localizes temporarily in the brain and maybe it transcends human existence. Maybe. So that's what philosophy and spirituality says. But science doesn't have any answers as of today. So I would certainly say that you are not the body. You are the mind. But where does the mind reside and where does it emerge from is something that we still don't know for sure. Of course, our ancient traditions are very clear about that. If you look at the Dharmic traditions, it's very clear that uh, the soul, the Atma, is something that permeates the entire universe. There is a universal soul and uh, our soul is just a a localized representation of something much bigger. So that is the philosophical and spiritual dharmic outlook or worldview. Science is unable to answer any of these questions as of today. So that is what I can say about this in very brief. So my friends, this brings us to the end of today's session. It's almost two hours. I think it's the longest session I've done thus far. So thank you so much for all your questions. I had many more questions lined up, but I have run out of time. So I will keep on doing this. You are asking such brilliant questions. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. I would like to thank all of the people who have asked me questions, all of the subscribers, all of the members, all of those you of you who are supporting the channel in, in various means. Thank you so much for it. I am very, very grateful. And I will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow is a live chat Q&A session. So I will see you then. Until then, take care and bye.